Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray for ourselves as we come to your word, that you would speak to us through your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would, wouldn't just see words on a page, but that we would hear your voice. And as we hear your voice, we would understand and want to obey. For Jesus' name, amen. What do you value most in life? What do you value most in life? Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, what you value will control what you feel. You may value the sex, sex uh, let me try that again. You may value the success of your football or rugby team. Uh, if you're England supporters, then I'm sure you're feeling pretty down in the dumps right now. You may value the achievement of your children. So a poor school report leads to a third degree inquiry and an extensive program of extra study. You may value your image, so that, admi uh, that admiring comment and even some attention from that special someone will bring a little joy to your heart. You may value your job, so a compliment from the manager or the promise of possible promotion will leave you all aglow. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so often the problem we face as Christians is that we value the things of the world more than we value God. And they're not even bad things. Families, friends, football, food, they're all God-given good things to enjoy. But we give to them a power only God should have. We look to them to provide us with love, security, and future. We make them into our gods. They become things that rule our hearts and govern our hopes. Paul puts it like this in Romans chapter 1, verse 25. He says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the, creator, the, the creature rather than the creator. Now, throughout Isaiah, the question has always been, who are you going to trust your life to? Who are you going to trust your life to? Are you going to trust the promises of God or the power of the world? Will your heart be drawn to worship the Creator or His creations? And it's a vital question, because only one way works. There's a great verse in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 9, which really sums up the whole of Isaiah. And it says, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. In other words, only trusting God works. Now, do keep in mind that Isaiah is writing about 700 B.C., 
This is a real bloke writing to real uh, people in history. And in 586 BC, the people who he's writing to will be taken off into exile in Babylon. And so what God is doing through the prophet Isaiah is he's graciously preparing his people for what is to come. They're going to be defeated. They're going to be taken off into a foreign land. And he's telling them here how to remain faithful to him. And in our chapters for today, chapters 46 and 47, God makes it very clear that he is far better than any idol we can come up with. And then he warns us that in the end, idolaters will be destroyed. So here's my first heading. If you're taking notes, hopefully it's on the screen. Oh, there we go. First heading. God is better than idols. This is all of chapter 46. God is better than idols. And here God offers for us two comparisons. And the first is between the idol that has to be carried and the God who carries his people. Have a look again at verse 1. Bell bows down, Nabo stoops low. The idols are borne by beasts of burden. The images that are carried about are burdensome, a burden for the weary. Bel was the chief god of Babylon, and Nebo was his son, who was supposed to be the god of wisdom and knowledge. And at New Year, the high point of the Babylonian religious calendar, they were to be carried from the shrine to the city. But here's the problem. The problem was that they were really quite heavy. And they had to be carried on beasts of burden. They had to be carried. They were, in fact, themselves a burden to the people as they had to haul them from the shrine to the city. And so says Isaiah, these are gods that you have to carry. They weigh you down. Especially if you're struggling with life. You see, Bel is not going to put a spring in your step. And Nabo can't help you out. Have a look at verse 2. They stoop and bow down together, unable to rescue the burden. They themselves go off to cavity, captivity. Now, God promised his people that their exile in Babylon would eventually come to an end when he sends Cyrus, the king of Persia, to uh, smash the Babylonian empire. And here the Babylonians are pictured as trying to rescue their own gods to carry them away as Cyrus comes in. It's a ridiculous picture, isn't it? A God you have to carry around, a God who wears you out. And yet don't we do the same? Don't we wear ourselves out trying to carry the burdens of our idols, whether it's wealth or success, happiness, love, family, fame, future retirement, health, beauty, and the list goes on. They become a burden to us. We wear ourselves out serving these things as if by them we will find fulfillment, purpose, and contentment. God says, stop. Stop. Listen to me. I am so different to all these idols you are living for in the world. Look what he says in verse 3 and 4. 
Listen to me, you descendants of Jacob, all the remnant of the people of Israel, to whom I have upheld since your birth and have carried since you were born, even to your old age and gray hairs. I am he, I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. You see, unlike the idols uh, who need to be carried around, the Lord carries his people from birth through life, even to death. They get gray hairs, but not from stress, through old age. And do you hear the intensity of God's promises in these verses? I am, I am he, I will carry you. It's interesting, all false religion is based on works. It's about what you have to do for your gods. And here in Isaiah, you have to literally carry your God around in order to get him from one place to the, ne to the next. Whereas true religion is about grace. It's about what God does for you. And God says, I will carry you. I will carry you through all your life, and I will rescue you. Where are Bell and Nebo today? Well, they're a distant memory of a non-existent nation. And where is the Lord who speaks through his word in Isaiah 46? Well, he is worshipped by over a billion people today. So in one corner, you have the idols you have to carry around that wear you out and that cannot save you. They are the things that dominate the treadmill of, world, of most people's world today. In the other corner, you have God who carries you from cradle to grave, who promises to sustain you and rescue you. Let me ask you this morning, which are you going to choose? Which have you chosen this past week? Where are you looking away from God to trust or rely on your idols? Where are you investing your hope and your concern and your joy? Because God says in verse 5, with whom will you compare me or count me equal? And just in case we're still doubting, God has another comparison for us. And here, it's between what is made and the one who makes. Have a look at verse 6 and 7. Some pour out gold from their bags and weigh out silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith to make it into a god. And they bow down and worship it. They lift up it up to their shoulders and carry it, they set it up in its place, and there it stands. From that spot it cannot move. Even though someone cries out to it, it cannot answer. It cannot save them from their troubles. Now these gods were clearly expensive to make. They sucked your bank balance dry. And yet they can't move. They can't even answer, and they certainly cannot save. Well, of course not. You've just made it. So let me ask you, as I ask myself, where are you investing your wealth 
into glorious gospel work that honors Jesus or into things that don't move, that don't answer and cannot save? What's sucking your bank balance? The idols do nothing. They say nothing. Yet God does what he wants and he speaks. It comes to pass. Have a look at verse 10 and 11. I will make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. From the east I summon a bird of prey, from a far off land a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said that I will bring about, what I have planned, that I will do. And of course, this again, referring to that bird, is again Cyrus, uh, Cyrus the king of Persia, who turned up exactly when God said he would in history. And he defeated the Babylonians. And yet, the people of Judah just wouldn't trust him. Verse 12. Listen to me, you stubborn-hearted, you who are now far from my righteousness. And then look what God does. He doesn't give up on them. He doesn't turn his back on them. He says, verse 13, I am bringing my righteousness near. It is not far away. And my salvation will not be delayed. I will grant salvation to Zion, my splendor to Israel. See, if you won't come too close to God, he will come close to you. Isn't that an amazing thought? And 700 years after Isaiah, God came to earth in Jesus Christ, his son. And in Jesus, God draws near to us like no other, walking the very roads of Judah. And with him, he brings God's righteousness. Maybe we can't draw close to God. So he has drawn close to us in Jesus. If you are not a Christian this morning, is there anyone like this God of the Bible who can give love like this? Who speaks and acts and carries us through life? And who will save us? How does all the empty, unmoving, and unspeaking things that we put our trust in even compare to the God of the Bible? And if we are Christians, why do we keep running back to those idols as if somehow by them we will find contentment, peace, and purpose, and happiness? Trusting God is the best and only wise way to live life now especially when we consider the alternative. And that brings me to my second main heading for this morning. In the end, idolaters will be destroyed. And this is all of chapter 47. Now, the Babylonians were a really confident nation. They didn't think they needed a little God from Judah telling them what to do. They thought they knew it all and had it all. So look what God says, verse 1 of chapter 47. Go down, sit in the dust, virgin daughter Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, queen city of the Babylonians. No more will you be called tender or delicate. 
So no longer are you going to be that beautiful virgin, tender and delicate. Instead, says God, verse 2, take millstones and grind flour, take off your veil, lift up your skirts, bare your legs and wade through the streams. You will, in fact, become Babylon the slave who has to grind flour on a millstone or even Babylon the whore. Verse 3, your nakedness will be exposed and your shame uncovered. I will take vengeance. I will spare no one. You see, just as God promises to save his people, he says, I will judge my enemies, those who line themselves up against me, the living God. The one in verse 4 who is the Redeemer, who buys back his people, is also the Lord Almighty the Holy One, who is so pure and so good, he will not tolerate evil, and he cannot tolerate those who reject him. He will punish them, and no one will escape. And so he says to Babylon in verse 5, he says, sit in silence, go into darkness, queen, city of the Babylonians, no more will you be called queen of kingdoms. And of course that's true, Babylon ceased to exist, it once was the greatest superpower of, on the face of the earth. And now it is so lost they can't even find the ruins of the city. Yes, God did use Babylon to punish his people. But he will hold them to account. Verse 6 tells them that they, that they showed no mercy. And so they will receive no mercy and be punished. Now I wonder, as you look at those verses, if you can see three things that the Babylonians say to themselves when faced with the pathetic God of Judah. They are no different, in fact, to the lies that we feed ourselves today. The first one's there in verse 7. I will live forever. Verse 7, you said, I am forever the eternal queen. But you did not consider these things or reflect on what might happen. You see, the Babylonians didn't think about death or destruction. That happened to other people on the news. That's not for me. They didn't pause to reflect on the fact that every human being before them had died. And every great empire before them had come and gone. I will live forever. The second thing they say to themselves is, I am in control of my life. Look at verse 8. Now then listen, you lover of pleasure, lounging in your security and saying to yourself, I am and there is none beside me. I will never be a widow or suffer the loss of children. Doesn't that sound familiar? Earlier on, back in chapter 46, isn't it what God himself says of himself? I am. I will carry you. You see, they're living as if they are God and in total charge of their destinies. Whatever they plan, they say that's going to happen to them. It's all going to be happy families, no disaster, no tragedies. But see what happens, verse 9. Both of these will overtake you in a moment, on a single day. Loss of children and widowhood. They will come upon you f in full measure in spite of your many sorceries and all your potent spells. 
doesn't matter how strong they thought they were, they were not in control. The third thing they say to themselves is, no one is going to hold me to account. Verse 10. You have trusted in your wickedness and have said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and knowledge mislead you when they say to yourself, I am and there is none besides me. You see, because they think they are God, then there is no one to hold them to account. They can do as they please with impunity. I think that there's no different to the assumptions of our world today. We say the same things, don't we? We live as if life goes on forever. We assume that our plans for our lives will always be fulfilled. What we choose will come about. And we think no one is watching, that no one's going to hold me to account. I've been intrigued by the, by the mass response to this whole pandemic situation. The shock of it has been that actually we are not in control and that our lives are not quite as certain as we think they are. It is fascinating to see how saving lives has become the ultimate priority of existence. It is all about saving life. Nothing else matters because we've been surprised and shocked by the fact that we are not in control of our lives. Of course, sadly, it doesn't cause us to turn to the God who is in control. We still think we hold account to no one. This is the world that we live in. May even the knowledge and wisdom of humanity has misled us, just as the knowledge and wisdom of the Babylonians had misled them. In fact, stand for all those who oppose God, who live as if God can be ignored, as if life goes on forever and we can do as we please, for there's no accountability. And God says to that, no, death will come. Your plans will fail. I see you and I will hold you to account. Have a look at verse 11. Disaster will come upon you and you will not know how to conjure it away. A calamity will fall upon you that you cannot ward off with a ransom. A catastrophe you cannot foresee will suddenly come upon you. So you won't be able to work your way out of this. You won't be prepared. It'll come upon you suddenly. And so verse 12 Keep on then with your magic spells and with your many sorceries which you have labored at since childhood. Perhaps you will succeed. Perhaps you will cause terror. You can keep on trying. There might be momentary success, but in the end, you will be worn out. Verse 13. All the counsel you have received has only worn you out. Let your astrologers come forward, those stargazers who make predictions month by month, let them save you from what is coming upon you. And that's our world, isn't it? This whole massive industry built on the discussion of how to solve the world's problems, blind to the heartache and failure of living life without God. And so God says, verse 15, 
That is all they are to you, those who have dealt with and labored with since childhood. All of them go on in their error. There is not one that can save you. All these people trying to give you advice and to sort your life out for you, to give you hope for the future, yet there's not one who can save. So in conclusion, here's the choice that every human being faces. We can choose our man-made idols, which will only in the end wear us down and give us no help but will suck us dry of energy. Or we can choose the God who will carry us through life from cradle to the grave, who will sustain us when things are rough and has sent his son to draw near and rescue us from our sin. Which will we choose? But be warned, because our choice has consequences. Because in the end, following idols will only lead us astray. They will tell us that we will live forever, that we have control of our lives, and that no one sees what we do. And God says, no. Death will come. Your plans without me will fail. I see you. And I hold you to account. So what will it be? Well, may our choice be the Lord Jesus and him alone. Let's pray. Father God, these are extremely challenging words. They leave us all uncomfortable because we confess that we are so easily drawn to the idols of this world. We so easily put our confidence and our hope for the future in the material things of this world. Father, forgive us. Help us to see your great love for us. Your love for us sent and expressed in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who left the glories of heaven and drew near with us in this world, and who displayed his love by going to the cross, and there purchased our salvation. Father, help us even as we go into this week, and indeed through our lives, to resist the idols of this world, to refuse to accept the lies of the world and to trust in Christ alone, for he is our salvation.